This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book under the title of Saul, who also is called Paul. And we are considering now not so much the earthen vessel, but the glorious truth that was entrusted to him, passed on to us, particularly in his wonderful epistles. The subject before us this morning is the initial subject of salvation. It's no use talking about the marvellous dispensation of the mystery if you're not saved. It's not much good arguing about anything if you're not saved. The first thing that you want to be sure about is that salvation is yours. And if ever there's a witness to salvation, it is found in the writings of this servant of God. You will notice that early in the story, New Testament, this emphasis upon salvation comes. The parents of John the Baptist spoke about raising a horn of salvation. And mine eyes have seen thy salvation, said the Virgin Mother. And heaven opened and the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men. Well, peace among men is one of the fruits of salvation. We read in the epistle of, of the Apostle Paul, in that chapter which our brother read just now, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, because it does what God intended it to do. And what is it intended to do? To make you wise. Oh, I see. Ah, wait. Make you wise unto salvation. You could be made wise in many things and still be dead so far as God is concerned. But unto salvation, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got it very clearly stated. The gospel is a message of salvation. And it's also wise to remember that the initial meaning of salvation is healing. Something that heals where there was before disease. So if you will turn for a moment to the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see by the emphasis there that this is intentional. A man has been uh, healed, you remember, and there's a certain amount of antagonism expressed by the leaders of the Jews because of this fact. And it's uh, just um, start reading with you at verse 8 of Acts, the fourth chapter. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers and people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed, done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. Notice he's, he's giving it fairly straight. It's a good deed that they're being persecuted about. A man who was impotent is made whole. You wouldn't think that would raise a certain amount of objection from religious readers, would you? Leaders, but it did. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now, the next thing is to notice this, that you could read the next verse like this. Neither is there he, the healing in any other. For this salvation is the word healing. He says, look, here's a man who's healed physically. But neither is there the healing. That is to say, the salvation which extends not merely to the body, but to the spirit and the mind, the whole person. Neither is there healing, the healing in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So although Peter had one aspect of truth deposited in him, and he had to be faithful to it, and Paul had another, they both agree in this supreme moment that there's no salvation apart from Christ, but there is a glorious salvation that's a result of trust in him. Now that's what we learn when we dip into this earthen vessel, this question of salvation. There are so many features that we would do well to consider that must be brought out from this earthen vessel. I'll just tick a few here that will be opened as God gives us opportunity on these Sunday mornings. Life itself. What's the good of talking to a person who is dead? And uh, folks may be actively alive so far as the things of this world are concerned, but you're very conscious, very conscious when you speak to them that so far as the things of God is concerned, they're dead. Well, this earthen vessel contains the promise of life and the gift of life and the way of life which we must consider. Not only that we may, may rejoice in it ourselves, but realise the need of the other man and the way in which this gift may be received. Or again, what about the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins? To realise that those Things which grow upon you as you get to know God, worse and worse, are entirely removed, never to be imputed again, because of the sacrifice of the Son of God. And then to see the two outcomes of this glorious salvation, both of which make a perfect, complete, redeemed person. I refer to two words, justification and sanctification. You go out of the law court, justified. And you go out of the temple, sanctified. Don't you feel that these need to be canvassed and examined so that we've got all these wonders that come to us through this salvation which we're speaking about as the initial act. And that is not all. We want to know a bit more about the way in which this salvation has been procured and we are very, very conscious it's based upon sacrifice. And then we have a very wonderful title which our Saviour has written to him in which we must rejoice. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, himself man, Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thought that when we approach God who is beyond our ability to conceive, 
we are conducted by the one who is both God and man, in a sense that no one else ever has or can be, the one mediator. And then we have two words which seem to be linked together. We have access into a presence that was shut to us, and we are made accepted in the beloved. And so I feel that we have in front of us for these Sunday morning services a wonderful set of teaching that we do well to allow this earthen vessel to set out before us. Now you may say, all this is what we know. Well, if that's the case, blessed be God. You can't know it too much. And so our thought this morning is this initial act, salvation. Now the apostle writing his epistle to the Romans was writing a doctrinal epistle to which we turn whenever we are dealing with the nature of sin or justification by faith particularly and so on. But do notice this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The very first chapter he's speaking about the gospel and he's writing to saints, he's writing to believers. And you and I need to have over and over again these initial terms of our redemption and our relationship with God so that we may stand fast and hold fast to the faithful word. I'm not ashamed. Now, there are figures of speech. And uh, if you were to speak to a little urchin out in the street here and try to give him a little lecture on figures of speech, he'd think you were crazy. But if he turned round and said to you, not half, he wouldn't know he was using a figure of speech, but he is. He's diminishing a thing in order to magnify it. He doesn't know that, neither do you. Not half, he says. Our Saviour says, uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I should think I wasn't. Not half. Not ashamed. He says, I glory in it. I'm willing to lay down my life for it if needs be. So do remember, there's a wealth in these statements by this servant of God and they're there waiting for us as we dip into the earthen vessel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God, the dynamic of God, the dynamite of God, the power beyond our ability to copy unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And everyone listening to me this morning, I believe, and thank God for it, has passed that way. And they can say, although there are many things hid from my mind and eyes yet, I do know this, that he is my Saviour. You notice how salvation is stressed at the beginning. The wise men came looking for a king. But we read about Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. A saviour is born at Bethlehem. And when you come to the book of the Revelation, they haven't forgotten salvation there. Salvation unto our God. For salvation is going on, friends. We are saved. We are being saved. We are going to be saved in various aspects and phases of this glorious fact. So do help us, let us remember that the very word salvation is the name of Christ. 
The Christ, of course, is the word anointed, but Jesus is the word saviour. The first one to bear the name in the scripture is the successor of Moses, Joshua. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, we read a passage, if Jesus had given them rest, he wouldn't have spoken afterwards. Now that's referring not to our saviour, that's referring to Joshua. Joshua, the one who led them across the river Jordan into the land of promise, was named Joshua. And the one who leads us across a deeper river Jordan and into a more wonderful land of promise, his name was Joshua. But inasmuch as the New Testament is written in Greek and translated into English, by the time it gets to us, the word Joshua is disguised, and we call him Jesus. And of course we continue to do so. So we remember these features. The law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Joshua, Jesus Christ, the anointed of God, the Saviour. I'd like just to add to this reference in Romans, the one in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13. I was rather tickled yesterday listening to a tape that has been made by our brother over in America. And he said um, he understood that my daughters, whenever there was a meeting on, he says, here it comes, Dad's going to go to Ephesians. <laughs> well, you can go elsewhere sometimes and fare worse. But in Ephesians, uh, chapter one thirteen, we have the apostle saying this. He says, um, In whom also ye also trusted, after he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So he's reminding the Ephesians, who are on a plane there, the highest that's known in scripture, that the gospel is the means of their salvation. The same as for the lowliest believer, who has heard in the open air that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Salvation is the same for all whether it leads always in the same direction and is involved in the same inheritance and has the same sphere of blessing, that's another question altogether. But when you're sitting there in the waiting room of the hospital, it doesn't matter whether you've got a Norman ancestry or no ancestry at all. You have to remember that what you need is this skilled and attention of the great position which is there set forth in type and symbol. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there is a little word that may come as a sort of warning to some folks. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We then, as workers together with him, that was the way in which the apostle looked upon himself as a servant of God, working together with him, what a precious thought that is, isn't it? Beseech you, not command you, beseech you, that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he says, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. And then he reminds them, Behold, now 
is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's a very dangerous thing for anyone to have come up against the need of a saviour and then to postpone it for some more convenient season. For the possibility is that convenient season will not come. This is the supreme thing. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And so we, by the mercy of God, have reached out our hand and received this gift and know that that is truth indeed. And then you'll notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, another aspect of the truth with regard to salvation, which I think should be included. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. He's contrasting some of them that had pleasure in unrighteousness. But in 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now here is something which is beyond our ability to probe. From the beginning. But it's a comforting thought that God didn't choose us in the beginning and then wake up to find that we were sinful. He knew all about us. He knew all that we would be. And he provided a saviour as well as a head. So he says here, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And then the next thing is so important, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the ways, the steps in this. Bound to give thanks, chosen to salvation, called by the gospel, obtaining the glory. And so we are going step by step from grace to glory. And 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He's speaking about himself in verse 9. Wherein, wherein I suffer trouble. This gospel that he was preaching. It wasn't a respectable calling. He suffered trouble. Wherein I suffered trouble as an evildoer. Even unto bonds. And then the irrepressible Paul. Almost under his breath. Put it in brackets. Let me read it again. Wherein I suffered trouble as an evildoer. Even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Remember that. That slipped in. I may be bound, but nothing can bind the word of God. That goes forward, whatever happens to his servants. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain that salvation. Now, here's a peculiar aspect of salvation. Not merely that they may 
obtain salvation in a general sense, if you can even speak of it like that. But he says, I have in mind that salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, accompanied with eternal glory. So you see, friends, we have only started. We have passed from death unto life. We have believed the gospel. We have entered into the joy of forgiveness of sins. We can say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. But we haven't done with salvation yet. We live, says the Apostle, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Notice, he's still called our Saviour. We are not saved in the full sense until we are presented spotless in that presence, in that day. What a word this is then, friends, to lift out from this earthen vessel salvation in all its various and wonderful aspects. In the um, was it about 2 Timothy 1.9 I wanted to just make sure of that. Yes, 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling now he puts in a corrective not according to our works if ever there was a man who could have been saved by works, I think the Apostle Paul would have been up among the number. He speaks about himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Tell me anything I ought to do more and I'll do it sort of Pharisee. For there were quite a number of different types of Pharisees. And he was that sort. And he collapsed when he realised what he was up against in this particular. So he reminds them. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So again we're taken back to the period before mankind God had a plan and he knew what was going to take place and he made this glorious provision so that we may be saved but not by our works but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ who hath abolished death. He's abolished death in the sense that it cannot hold anyone forever. Salvation includes resurrection. Otherwise, glory is a, is a tantalizing word which we shall never enter. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality. Immortality is a word bandied about by some. But immortality is the gift of God. It's not the natural condition of the person or the soul. But it re is ours waiting for us in the glory. Life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. So we are not wrong when we concentrate our attention upon Saul, who also is called Paul, 
Not because we're magnifying the man, but we're accepting God's uh, prerogative to choose what vessel he shall use. And this is the one particularly set apart for the ministry of truth among the Gentiles. Suppose we just give a word from Hebrews. This apostle to the Gentiles had one opportunity to speak to his own people in this epistle, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He now speaks to the Hebrews about a character of Christ which he never uses anywhere else. If you read right through Paul's epistles, Romans and Corinthians and Thessalonians and Timothy and so on, he never once refers to Christ as a priest. We may have our reasons in our mind for it, or we may not know why. But when he's writing to the Hebrews, he speaks about Christ as a priest many times, in many ways, because they had been brought up with regard to the teaching of the tabernacle, and the veils, and the priesthood, and the mercy seat, and so on. And so Christ is forfeiting that. And so he says here, in chapter 7, verse 25, these words. Oh, I thought I must go back again a little bit earlier. Verse 23 is speaking about these priests. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. That's the reason why they had continuance, by passing the priesthood on. But this man, because he continued ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, I think the word unchangeable doesn't give us the meaning that the apostle had in his mind. It doesn't mean a, a priesthood that could be not changed into something else, but it means a priesthood that could not be passed on, an intransmissible priesthood. Nobody else could follow him. There were priests appointed to follow Aaron, but not this one. And the reason why is that he differed from Aaron in this particular. But this man, because he continueth ever, this risen Christ, who is the priest of Hebrews, he dies no more. So there's no need to appoint a successor for him. It's not possible and not necessary. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. He is a priest to the uttermost. His salvation is to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he liveth, no, seeing he ever liveth, to make intercession for them. And so we have this stress. And um, I think coming back to Romans, we might get one aspect which I haven't touched upon, uh, which uh, I think is necessary for us to include. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. In verse 8 it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in contrast to what has already been said before, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to turn to him. He provided a saviour to turn us to God. Much more then, being now justified, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath 
through him. Isn't that a comfort? Because we belong to Christ and we are justified by his blood, the, the terrible thought of standing before a judgment seat and the wrath of God being a possibility before us is gone, completed, once and forever. So he says here, I'll read that again, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, which is rather a pity. I don't mean to say it's a pity what we've received, but it's a pity that we have to revise the English here. Because this may strike a wrong note. We never received the atonement that Christ made when he died, the just for the unjust. That was offered to God. But the at-one-ment, which is the consequence of atonement, is the word reconciliation in our language. So shall we just alter that to be sure? And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so we have these marvellous features in salvation. There's one further point, another finish, that not so that I finish the subject, we've got to go on with these wonderful uh, aspects of truth which we find in this servant's ministry. But if you'll turn to the epistle of Titus, you'll see that it's, you can't avoid that it's there on purpose. Running through this little epistle to this servant of God, Titus, the apostle has spoken about God our Saviour in first chapter, second chapter, third chapter, and he alternates the titles. God our Saviour, Jesus Christ our Saviour. It's evidently on purpose. So shall we make that our own before we finish? Titus 1, 3 and 4. Uh, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but that in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. Well, there we have God our Saviour. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So in one verse it's God our Saviour, and in the next verse it's Jesus Christ our Saviour. Well, you'll find this is repeated, chapter 2. Verse 10, he's speaking to servants, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. But if you look further down, it says in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope 
and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So we have once more God our Saviour and Jesus Christ our Saviour. And then in chapter 3 we have it all over again, verse 4. But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, and then in verse 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Well now, that would perhaps demand a separate study all to itself. But don't you see by the sheer fact of reading it, the Apostle is emphasising to his son Titus and to us that although the Saviour must be a man, as by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, he's no ordinary man. Because he can be spoken of as God our Saviour in the same breath as is Jesus Christ our Saviour. And if that causes you trouble and you have a difficulty to believe it, well, don't let that stop you, for none of us can encompass it. None of us can really know in the full sense what it means for the Son of God to be both spoken of as God and man. But we realise that it's concentrated in one precious word, and that word is enough for us till the day comes to by his mercy to know even as we are known. And his name is Emmanuel, Emmanuel, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name should be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Father of the Ages, and the Prince of Peace. This is found in the earthen vessel of Saul, the Apostle, in his preaching of Christ to the Gentiles. I've touched upon, only touched upon, the one of the aspects, salvation. We hope to touch upon a good many more that arise out of this before we put this earthen vessel aside and find other means of instruction and edification.